Inside each and every one of us, there is a desire to belong, to know that we can show up as we are without judgment or justification, to know what it feels like to be wanted and longed for, to know the power of community. But what if each and every one of us had the power to create belonging from within? What if there were people already building spaces for you to be you? What if they believe so deeply in the power of connections, justice, collaboration, creativity, and empathy that they knew they could heal the world? That is where you belong. And the exploration of spaces, places, and experiences where we allow ourselves to be free. There is a place where you belong. Welcome. We've been waiting for you to arrive. Hi there, and welcome to Where You Belong, the podcast where we explore spaces, places, and experiences where we allow ourselves to be. My name is Anna Chapman, and I will be your guide on this adventure. And today we have a very special guest. We have Sabrit Kang Rajiv, who is a first-generation Indian-American of Sikh descent. Sabrit is a full-time social science researcher, a brand-new mom, and the author of an incredible book called Generation Zero, Reclaiming My Parents' American Dream. In this episode, we go on a deep dive. This is a longer episode. It's an hour and 15 minutes or so. And so I just want you to have this experience. This was one of the most brilliant conversations I've had the privilege of having this year. And I couldn't highlight how incredible Sabrit is and how incredible this book is. So I'm not even going to take any more of your time with this intro. I just want us to get into the episode and for you to get a taste of all of the wonderful wisdom that Sabrit brings to how we think about life, how we think about ourselves, how we think about our culture. So without further ado, if you want to learn more about Sabrit, you can visit her Instagram at Sabrit Kong Rajiv. You can also go in her Instagram to the link tree. You can also go to a bookstore online and find her book. Again, I'm going to tell you the name. It is Generation Zero, Reclaiming My Parents' American Dream. So without further ado, you know how to contact us at I am Anna Chapman. I am Anna Chapman at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. And so with that, I give you this incredible episode. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Belonging with Sabrit. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Where You Belong, the podcast where we explore spaces, places, and experiences where we allow ourselves to be. I am so excited to be here today. Our guest is someone that I'm just meeting today for the first time, but in our kind of pre-call, we already had a great conversation, and I'm so excited to introduce them to you Um Sabrit Kong Rajiv is a writer and a social science researcher and has written this awesome book called Generation Zero, Reclaiming My Parents' American Dream. And I am so excited to get into this conversation. So welcome, Sabrit. How are you today? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing really, really fantastic. (laughs) It's so great to have you. Will you tell everybody a little bit about who you are, and then, of course, I'm sure it's going to get into how you decided to write this awesome book. 
Yeah, no, sure. I would love to. So some background on me, I'm actually a researcher by nature. So I'm, those, I'm a weirdo where I really like to ask people questions about why they're thinking the way that they're thinking. Um, I'm obsessed with social patterns, sociology, just understanding the human uh, psychological thinking. I'm, that's like my passion. And so I, I do that for like a living. I do a lot of qualitative and quantitative research, but um, personally, I'm also a writer. So I took it to another step where I'm, I try to examine and understand my own life, which is a little bizarre to say, but also <sighs> super fulfilling. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. Um, so yeah, I wrote uh, a book about, um, you know, my parents' immigration history and as well as just growing up in America as like a, a first generation American, like what that felt like and just, you know, what it just means to be different, but also part of a collective American experience, um, especially during this time. Um, so it's it's been quite a interesting, I think, journey, uh, but I'm really happy that I've actually written that book. I can't imagine how it would feel to write this book and then now to be in this time um, in our in America, in this country, where uh, things are really like coming, bubbling up to the surface. We're seeing um, maybe a lot more beneath the systems that are kind of working us that we didn't see before. And so can you give us a little bit of um, an intro to your book so that folks who are just meeting you for the first time can kind of hear um, a little bit about what what you're sharing and what your story is? Oh, absolutely. So Generation Zero, Reclaiming My Parents' American Dream is about uh, a South Asian family, and particularly um, an Indian American family. And it's a story where really my family has immigrated to America in a very non-traditional way. So a couple of things about the South Asian community. Um, I'm pretty sure a lot of people have heard this before, but there's something in the South Asian community that's really well known, which is, um, you know, the model minority myth. Uh, people think that a lot of South Asians, when they immigrate to America, are super rich, super successful. Uh, you know, they're really educated. They're, they're lawyers, doctors, and engineers of our time. And it kind of like erases and eradicates um, individuals that don't come from that historic uh, privilege and if their immigration stories are a, bit, a little bit different. So my parents and the way that they came to America was very different. Um, you know, they didn't come uh, with a semester visa or a student visa. They came illegally. Um, my dad came on a cargo ship. My mom came um, after they got married and became pregnant with me here. But uh, the bigger story is like uh, the South Asian community, uh, when a main narrative uh, is sold about like the collective experience of so many different diversity of people, um, it silences like so many pockets of people that don't fit that main narrative and especially in the like, immigration status. So it's like, if you think about it, people once they're able to become permanent citizens and are have you know all of the model minority traits like I'm rich, I'm successful, I'm educated, whatever, I, I have like white collar professional careers, they're able to talk about those experiences. But if you come from a, pra- a place of um, you know a disadvantage, you're not able to become that voice. And my parents are working collar individuals. Uh, you know I've grown up in the system. I've been able to become a white collar professional. And because of that, um, you know, the story really is about 
talking about, you know, what it feels to be like, not really an Indian, <laughs> also yeah. totally not an American. <laughs> it's like, what am I? And how is this my reality in this country that both my parents and I are trying to learn to belong to? Wow, that's incredible. And I think that's like this, this experience that a lot of people who are from multicultural backgrounds in America are experiencing. Um, it's just like, where do I, where do I belong? And where do I fit? And how do I, what is my culture? Exactly. And it's like so complicated sometimes. And it's like, if you think about the mainstream culture of, you know, of it being an American, I guess, it's like you try to like, you know, see if you belong with your brown counterparts. And then sometimes when you open that door, <laughs> you realize you're not as Indian enough. You don't aren't coming from a place of privilege when you interact with other South Asians. And the first question they ask you is, well, what do your parents do? Do they have a law firm? And you're like, actually, no, <laughs> my parents are working their butts off trying to provide me with the the roof and the food in my stomach. So it's kind of like a different experience. And, you know, you, you're not as comfortable talking to the other people that look like you because you don't want to be on the outside with them as well. Wow. That really kind of pigeonholes you as a kid growing up of like who you can and can't hang out with, what you can and can't say, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it, it's it's one of those things where, you know, kind of tying it back to like my book, you know, the reason I call, uh, named my book Generation Zero is – I was doing some research on this, like, hey, what generation am I? Am I first generation? Am I second generation? I was like nerding out badly. Like, I don't understand because <laughs> I'm just trying yeah. to understand my reality. Like, what can totally. I say that I am? And I realized like the Webster's Dictionary says like a first generation is someone that was born there. The Census Bureau is like, you know, depending on your legal status of when you've received citizenship, you can be a first, second or third generation. And I'm sitting there like, so you can't help me. So why don't I just make my own term <laughs> generation zero, which is essentially, you know, my parents came to America with nothing. My dad mm. came with the clothes on his back. Um, with the, I, I believe he came with like a thousand dollars and my mom literally came with just a few clothes as well. So it's like, when you come with nothing, you don't uh, have like family, you don't have friends, you don't have like a social network of, of, of a community. You, you start at zero. So, you know, for wow. me, Generation zero is where I belong. It's, you know, being at zero, trying to make a community and then, you know, being comfortable in whatever community you decide you want to be a part of. More importantly, understanding that the American experience really is about being who you want to be, picking the cultures that resonate with you, whether it be Indian culture or you know, any culture, honestly, it really doesn't matter um, that that is what truly is the American dream. If, you know, yeah. you dream correctly, <laughs> I know right now being an American is very interesting, but if you think yeah. about how it's supposed to be, it's um, the freedom of choice is very important. And I think in America is the only place you can have that. Wow. That's so interesting because it's like here you can, well, I think, well, you it know. depends, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly because it's like if you think about other countries uh i mean if you just tweeted something about uh, a, a dictator or something off goes your head so it's like choice totally. is relative <laughs> totally yeah you have a lot of choice here it doesn't change the discrimination or the way in which your choices are received here 100%. but you can make them without 
um, for the most part, being murdered. <laughs> <laughs> but also, even in that, it depends, right? It's It depends exactly. on like the color of your skin and stuff like that. Exactly. It's just, it is so relative. And I just think that there really isn't any place that is so um, utopia. But it's like, I feel like with America, at least, at least from my family's experience, it's like the first place where... I feel like some of the choices that I've made as an individual and the choices that my family have, have made together um, help us become better individuals. Like I'll give you an example Yeah. in the South please. Asian community. I don't know if this is the first time you're hearing about this. If it is the first time, brace yourself. <laughs> braced. We're all braced. <laughs> you know, in the South Asian community, um, women are viewed less. So mm-hmm. uh, when you have a son, when uh a sons are really like the investment of like a family's, you know, everything. So it's kind of like having a son is a lot more valuable than having a daughter. And um, when I was born, I'm the first child. Uh, I was a daughter and, you know, my father was unfortunately upset that I was a daughter and thinking about, you know, the first story that's ever been told to me as a, as a woman, it's like, you're, you know, because of who you are and how you came out and your dad was upset. And that kind of like, you know, shapes the, your understanding of like, what's wrong with me? uh, What is happening? Why am I less or more than my brother who was actually born 14 months after me? It does a couple of things. It talks about, you know, how a child or like an, uh, an individual in family can understand their collective experiences of how valuable they are. Mm. But more importantly, you know, in my life, I've also seen that because my parents live in America and they're around other people and their thought process is changing, um, they've actually changed in the way that they think about some historical, traditional South Asian views. Whereas when I go back to India, whenever I go back, I've only gone like twice or three times or something like that. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like I'm hit with this altercation of like, wow, these people think very differently. And if I'm wearing something that is a little revealing, like my arms are out, um, I'll be quickly reminded about, hey, why are they out? Also, your the color of my skin really does matter in in, in India as well, like light versus dark skin, oh, you know, the okay. religion. I mean, it's just endless social class, like what class system you're a part of, like all of that really plays into like an individual stratification of who they are. Um, I was able to see how, wow, that's really crazy. Wow, my parents are changing. There's still some craziness here, <laughs> but at least wow, yeah. they're overcoming it and they're learning to grow. Um so that's been that's what's been really interesting um, from my perspective. But it's one of those things in the South Asian community. If you ask somebody like, "Hey, aren't daughters valued less?" They're like, "Of course they're not. We're we're woke individuals, and we believe daughters and sons are equal." But it's one of those like it's like a white lie where it's like that's what they say, but it's like we know what the yeah. reality is. <laughs> it's so funny you say white lie. Have it heard that in a while and it has it lands differently in 2021 (laughs) it totally does (laughs) but that's a that's really man I can imagine how uh confusing as a kid that might be to have this sort of gender class association um and to be judged by it and have to learn to be sort of indoctrinated into that framework of thinking and how beautiful it is that your parents have been able to sort of re 
think through that piece because it sounds like everything you're doing is really like bringing a lot of um, honor and visibility and support to your family as you've grown up and as you've done what doing what you're doing now. And honestly, it's terrifying, (laughs) like, you know, in the, you know, in any community, I think, but in particularly the South Asian community, you don't talk about some of the things that I talk about in my book. You don't talk about mental health. You don't talk about how much money you have. You don't talk about um, the struggles that your family has gone through. You are always uh, portraying a perfect image of the perfect family of the South Asian community in America. And if you talk about any of these things, uh, you know, there's like a saying that um, in Hindi that a lot of people say, it's like, it's like, what are people going to say about you behind closed doors? And in the South Asian community, I, I don't know why your image is so important uh, in the mm. community of people that are here. Um, so talking about these experiences and talking about them, you know, in a raw manner, like nothing is edited out. It's just all there. Like yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very uncomfortable, but even having written this book and publishing it and seeing the support that my family has given me also confirms just how much they have grown in their thinking around that. And, you know, I know like I looked for something like my book, like when I was growing up, you know, like do, do are people depressed? You know, what happens if your father's a taxi driver and your mother is working in a, at a fast food restaurant? What happens when you don't have money for your tuition? Also, what happens when you don't know what it means to get educated and you don't know mm. um, if I'm struggling with math, who do I reach out to? Like all of these things that I inter- uh, I faced when I was growing up, I didn't really have anybody to turn to other than, believe it or not, a dictionary. Google wasn't around then, but it was the wow. library or something yeah. like that. And just trying to figure it out on my own and somehow landing, I think I turned out okay. <laughs> but it's like, also, how did this happen? I believe like luck had some factor to play in here too because it's Mm -hmm. like when you come from a place of disadvantage every small decision that you make is so important and it honestly shapes the rest of your life um and it's it's just interesting to to be quite honest and it's just one of those things where it's just like what would have happened if you know i had some other type of guidance and i did something else like where would my life plan out but the bigger point is is that in the south asian community um if you do come from money, you do come from a family of educated elites, and you do come from any type of privilege, whether it's like you own a, a chain of Dunkin' Donuts, um, your experiences are different, but also there's some commonalities that regardless of the um, social class and SES of a family that kind of like transcend. So a couple of those are like the culture, what how women are treated, um, what is acceptable, and just like the the generational trauma that a lot of ch- children of immigrants face when they see their parents working endlessly, saving everything, trying to provide for their future, and the mental health tolls that has on it uh, on a child growing up um, wow. can be very significant, um, and sometimes it's 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 hard to cope with. Yeah. Wow. And just, I just want to like take a moment as, as you were talking, like I can imagine, I can only imagine, <laughs> I, I, I can kind of, <laughs> how, how brave you would have to be to just like, even tell your family, I want to do something like this. And some of your stories might be in there and like, 
it's going to be from my perspective, but you're going to be part of this and how cool it is that they're, they've received you well. And, and also like, what a, what a privilege now for people to have access to a story. And I'm sure that you're going to inspire through this book, others um, to really tell their story of how to navigate this world. Because as you're speaking, I'm just like, wow. Yeah. I had like a lot of guidance and a lot, you know, people in my life were telling me the tips and tricks, you know, my family was based here. And so everybody kind of corralled together. And I, I grew up on Hawaii, on Oahu, excuse me, um, in Hawaii. And so we were not super connected with our community of like our external family, but there was a place always I knew I could go. So I'm just really in awe of your journey. And it, Thank you so much for saying that. First of all, let's trade places. I will love to grow up in Hawaii. I literally grew up in like Queens, Flushing, and then Baltimore. So it's totally not sexy. But if you ever want to trade, let me know. But we'll do a little swap. Yeah. But the the coolest, I think the the coolest, and also like the funniest thing about this is that in the South Asian community, everything. I, and I'm like not even kidding. In the dominant narrative of the South Asian experience, everything down to like almost the color of your jeans is picked out for you. <laughs> like wow. where you're going to school, what you're wearing, who you're hanging out with, the religion you follow, what you do in after school programs. They're, like if your parents are doctors, they will make sure that you become doctors. There's no wow. question in their mind that you're not going to become what they have sought out for you to become, whether it's like the horoscopes that they look up when you're born. I mean, it's just like everything is so calculated in, in, uh, in such a micro level that my experiences as a South Asian woman that is coming from the uh, you know the subordinate narrative that isn't well known is that my parents advice was just get educated compared to the main dominant narrative of the South Asian experience where it's just like wow. you will become a lawyer <laughs> and I do sometimes wonder that if my parents were so prescriptive in that where would I be and would I actually be um, what type of happiness would I find in my career? And also what would end up happening? Would I be able to uphold those dreams as well? Um, I think in a weird way, I was lucky that I wasn't guided as much because I just kind of like fell into careers, interests of things that I wanted to do. But if it was described to me in such a particular way that you are going to become blah, um, I'm not sure what my mental health would be like and um, wow. how I would be as an individual. You, you know what I mean? So totally. So there was like a, there was like total, um, you were either given the calculated path where everything you did was dialed down to a T, everything you were going to do, your family, your marriage, all of this was like laid out. And then your experience was like, there's one mission, it was to get educated, but you didn't know how to get educated, what you know, like that's one of the broadest terms I've ever heard. That's what I'm saying. It's like, that's what, okay. yeah, that is such a difference. And yeah. coming from with your parents from that culture, it'd be so confusing because they were probably really confused. Exactly. And then wow. it's just like, just think about how broad that term is just get educated. Okay. So what am I going to get educated on? It's like the small decisions that they made, uh, you know, after I was born and stuff like that. 
um, my parents chose to speak to me in our native language of Punjabi, and they chose not to speak to me in English. The only English I ever learned was through the television. And so obviously being an American born citizen <laughs> and then showing up to school in an elementary school and then being in ESOL classes, you're like, what in the world is happening? You know, it's, it's just interesting. I'm happy that they did that because uh, I was able to learn two languages really well. But what what ends up happening is like when the t- the term of getting educated is so broad, um, there's like heartache and also like, you know, a lot of freedom in that. Sometimes it becomes like when you do need help with something, like where do you go? You have no one to turn to except for maybe your teachers who sometimes, depending on how teachers are, the school that you go to, I mean, there's so many factors, right? Yeah. The attention that you get might vary, but more importantly, I learned at a very young age to become an adult and that if there was mm-hmm. a problem, I was going to figure it out. I wasn't going to burden my my parents that are literally and figuratively working themselves to death, trying to provide for us um, some questions that I have about how to get educated. You know what I mean? It's like they were handling everything else and my job was just to handle this part but then also it's like it was very much understood as a child of immigrant that you know this was something that I'm taking care of for their future because if I get educated that means we get educated that means there's like financial stability in the future um wow but it's also like separated so it's like it's like, you know, you don't really talk about the mental uh, barriers that you have in a family because you just want to make sure everyone's having a great day as much as they can because um, the social factors are so monumental of, you know, that you don't really know what to do. You know what I mean? Yes. Wow. That is, man, for a kid, that is so much pressure. And also like, that takes a very good amount of resilience to be able to meet that challenge without, um, you know, totally losing your sense of reality with your mental health. And like, thank you so much for giving us a perspective into, or or a look into your perspective, because, you know, I think when, um, when we see people out in the world, we have no idea where anyone came from or what the struggles that they're going through, but that is such a different cultural expectation than that of, you know, a white kid born in America. Um, And how you took that and you ran with it. And it actually, you learned right away that you had to figure it out. And now that you're a researcher, it's kind of amazing because you started so young. You're like, okay, let me figure this out. (laughs) Honestly, I feel like that I, I was probably a researcher at like age two at this point because it's like I think about that all the time but it's just like the beauty of living around uh, diversity is just having conversations like this is understanding that you know I know this much about Anna but oh my goodness I don't know 95% about Anna and everything that she's gone through what's yeah. happened in her life like I don't know so many things around what has made you you and what disservice would I do if I just hold you to a standard of what you're supposed to be? Like, you know what I mean? Like that's just insanely ridiculous to me. But I think what we can do as individuals and as humanity is just treat everyone with some kindness because you really do not know, regardless of if they are that smart Indian or, you know, crazy rich Asian, (laughs) what they've actually gone through. Um, 
there could be so much around uh, their collective identity that they're trying to hide or trying to cope with, even as adults. I know that this is going to sound really funny now that I think about it. Like I was t- talking to you about this, thinking about what I was doing as a child and like what my hobbies were. And I kid you not, Anna, you know what my hobbies were? I mean, I'm everyone- so ready. I'm so ready to hear them. <laughs> like born in the 90s, you already know there are certain things that I probably liked or did not like. So I was obsessed with Hello Kitty, right? So I was oh, obsessed same. with Hello Kitty. <laughs> Okay, I love that. I was obsessed with Hello Kitty, and only the parts of Hello Kitty that I was like, obsessed with were where there were books. There were like you know the pencils and crayons and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So I always rationalized it as this is a part of me getting educated. So here goes Hello Kitty oh telling me God. what to do, and then I would have all of the stationery for Hello Kitty and like Lisa Frank because I'm like I am gonna write my this subject in this one that subject in this one and that's how I like kind of vibed with (laughs) the the culture of the 90s but it's also like interesting because I think about like what if I wasn't told to get educated like would I be into like those Tamagotchis more like I have no idea (laughs) wow that's amazing you're like okay I, I am a kid and I think Lisa Frank and Hello Kitty is really cute but let me see like can I participate in this? And like, okay, nope. School supplies, <laughs> that's part of getting educated. Like, I can commit. <laughs> Such a weirdo. Like, why was I doing this? But also, like, I'm pretty sure everyone was collecting Hello Kitty and Lisa Frank stationery. But it's just funny, like, how even in, like, the, the culture of what was happening in the 90s, I decided to, like, isolate myself and realize that no one else is actually doing this with me. <laughs> Oh, man. But I think that's, like, so indicative of the place you were mentally, right? Like, you keep speaking to this, like, I didn't know what to do. And I I think, like, as a kid, we have to rationalize what we're doing, especially if we're in, in places where we're like, I think this is right, but, like, no one's really telling me. And how savvy you were, like... You still got the cute stuff, but you also were like, okay, this is part of education. What am I going to do? Write on my hand? No, I need paper. I need pencils. And um, like, but I want Hello Kitty on it because I'm also a child that's trying yeah. to figure it out. You know what I mean? And I just, I find that fascinating because it's like, if you think about um, just children in general, there's a great book that I read recently. It's called All About Love by Belle Hooks, I believe. Oh, and, yes. I love oh, books. I literally am obsessed with that book. I think I've read it like four times already, but it's just like thinking about children. Um, they're born and they kind of already, the world kind of tells them throughout their experiences as they're growing up, like not to listen to their inside voice, to always get some kind of validation, some some type of, um, you know, comfort from the voices outside of their body. So whether that be their parents, whether that be society, whether that be school. But if you think about love and you think about when a child is born and the inner voice that they have, society is trying to tell them to eradicate that inner voice. But I think there's some great power in always regardless of if you're a child or not, and regardless of the noise that you're getting from the outside experiences, to just listen to your voice inside. And I feel like when I was growing up, I mean, my voice was my friend. (laughs) You know, I always uh, turned inward to understand, hey, is this okay? Like, if they're telling me that being a woman is less than being a man, I'm like, well, I kind of think that's wrong. And looking around, I'm like, and if you think about it in my micro family, I'm like, hey, I think this is wrong. Um, I look at my cultural, uh, you know, community and I think, hey, this is also wrong because I see that the women are serving the men. And I look around and I'm like, why is this, why is society this way? So I would always 
essentially listen to my inner voice, become super inquisitive in trying to find factual uh, statements, whether I look, you know, in the library or I, I look at, you know, um, I'm also, I'm Sikh, so I will look at some of like the scriptures, like, hey, what does this actually mean? Um, to figure out like, what is like my history? <laughs> what is wow, like the yeah. background on this? Essentially, I was doing a literature review on my existence. <laughs> and <laughs> Wow, you're so cool, Sabri. Like I am so into your child self just being like, okay, <laughs> you got to sort this out. I don't and know through why. your life, you were just analyzing and but also when that's the tool given to you, right? Like studying was the tool. Yeah. So of course you're going to start in the books and then be like, wait, I don't think these are actually like still as relevant as everyone is maybe going by, right? Yeah. And like I honestly believe that I was just always questioning everything. Maybe I was super woke and I didn't even realize what woke even meant back in the day, but I just was always super opinionated, always asked questions. And being a South Asian woman that is asking questions and just asking the simple question, why? Yeah. <laughs> it's seen disrespect. It's like it's seen as she's being disrespectful, but it's like that was just how it's making sense of my reality. But more importantly, I'm happy that, you know, somehow I had the courage to listen to my inner voice because if it wasn't for that inner voice, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you, nor would I have written that book. And maybe if I just was comfortable with what society was telling me to do, I probably would have become something else. And I probably would not be here, um, which I'm so happy that I'm here in the way that I am, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, we really do as a society try to sever children from their innate knowing. Like I do um, a lot of... Uh, fat research and, and on the sort of fat experience of people growing up. And it's so interesting how we really get tied to this way in which we're like, no, you should be eating this way or moving this way. And like kids inherently and innately know exactly how they want to move and what they want to eat and when it's enough and when they want more. And and we just don't give them that trust and we don't give them that power to tell us what they need. Mm -hmm. And so like, even as you're talking, like my partner um, grew up with a very different family dynamic where they had a lot of time alone and a lot of space to figure things out. And they, they actually had a lot of time with cartoons. So they're now an animator and um, but the stories in cartoons really help them develop um, as, as well as school and all these things, like their sense of morality and value systeming. And I think it's amazing because like I was, you know, raised pretty privileged as a, a white child. And I was told, you know, any question I had, I'd get it answered to me and I didn't probably have to look up as many things as I could have. And so I'm now in a time where, you know, the world is changing. I'm starting to see these like systems that have never worked, but I've always been told they do work. And it's like breaking my mind. And it's so hard for me to really like unlearn all of these things. And then I'm seeing my partner who didn't get indoctrinated into quite as many of these like arbitrary rules and like the ways in which we use shame to keep people contained. Like they just, they didn't get that education. And so they have this ability to analyze things, 
be much more um, uh, data-based and less emotional when it comes to like the reality of how the world operates. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was kind of given the fairy tale and stories. And so I'm like, no, it's not that way. And I, I'm noticing like I'm having to really break those ideas down. And it's so challenging because I was, I was sold the fairy tale, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's what you just said is so true. It's like, if you think about it, you know, our whole life, we're essentially at, as children, we grow up, we interact with certain things, whether it be cartoons, whether it be different stories, we're sold a narrative around what our human experience is going to be like. Then we grow up in this human experience and we're like, wait, 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 (laughs) (laughs) this is actually not what I thought I was going to be getting. And then you unlearn these things. Correct. So it's kind of like, you know, my job, you know, I, I, we were just talking earlier, like, um, you know, first time mom, my job is to just make sure that my child is, you know, as much as I can, that I don't have to let them unlearn anything. Like I hold them to, you know, just be who they want to be, like understand like, hey, when they are asking questions around, hey, is everything a happily ever after? Just telling them the truth, like, honey, no, it's not. <laughs> Some things <Yeah>. really depend. <laughs> so it's like, you know, children are pretty resilient and they can handle the truth because they already know the truth. Like I think about my experiences growing up as a, as a child, when I would see conflict in my family, I know there was conflict. I could sense the conflict, even if people weren't talking and children can sense that. And, you know, it's, there's, there's, there's a great disservice that you do if you just lie to them about we're actually fine when they clearly see all the signs of how things are not fine. Yeah. And if you think about it, then here we are as children, we grow up, we are given this fantasy and these messages that we receive, some are probably good. Most of them are probably bad given media is just trash. (laughs) Cosign. That is so real. (laughs) And then, all of a sudden you're spending like a majority of your life unlearning these things. You're going yeah. from a relationship to a relationship, trying to find whatever it is that you're trying to look for, but then also ignoring the, your relationship with yourself because you're not really at hundred percent with yourself. And then you unlearn after you've found some stability in your understanding of an, as an individual, you start unlearning some of this toxic things that you've learned through society. But, uh, you know, like you were mentioning this earlier and I, I really have to talk about, you know, body shaming and like how that is so different in every culture, but also yeah. the same. It's, it's really pushed in the South Asian community, especially in the Punjabi culture. It's, <laughs> they will feed you more. Like they will feed you till you genuinely die. <laughs> like, like children, like we talk about this, um, you know, in my family with my cousins and stuff like that, even as children, regardless of your body size, like, you know, how much you can handle, you know, how much yeah. food you can handle, you know, which types of food that you can actually consume, given that sometimes children want to eat you know, yeah, donuts and stuff or whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Who doesn't, right? I still do. But Saying, it's like, <laughs> love it. I love McDonald's sometimes. It's fine. Yeah. Literally give me the double cheeseburger right now. But right? it's like <laughs> Steve Hot Fries, I'm here for it. Like, give it to me. But the point is, is just like as there's there's something that should be like uh realized and spoken to about children and their eating habits. And at a young age, they know exactly how much their bodies can or can't take. And they also understand that there's certain foods that they do or do not like. And as sometimes as role models and as parents and as um, extended family, what they end up doing is they push certain foods on Mm -hmm. them. And sometimes if they push too much, like, hey, if you're, you know, 
if depending on like the size of your body, they'll take food away from you saying, why are you eating so much when they're literally just eating small things and they're not, the parents are not really aware about the other things that are happening in their body. that are actually physical manifestation of like what's might be happening inside. But it's just kind of like, if I eat a piece of toast and you eat a piece of toast and someone else eats a piece of toast, the way that our bodies are going to react to the piece of toast is completely different. (laughs) But you know, even in the culture expectation of like South Asian community is so ridiculous. They push it on you. And then if you fight back saying, I don't really want to eat this food, then the element of respect comes in. Like we, you should be respectful to your elders because they know what type of food should go into your body, your temple, which I completely disagree with. (laughs) Yeah. No one knows your body. Like, you know, your body. And that is interesting. The like taking away because I don't think people understand like when when kids are hungry, then the, their bodies are like, okay, we're in starvation mode. Anything I eat, I got to hold on to for dear life, you know? Exactly. And yeah. the one thing that I've realized is that across the board, all parents think that when a child says no, that it's like the end of the world. Like it's disrespectful. I disagree. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> if a child tells me no, and I as a parent ask them, why is that a no? And they're like, well, because... I'm going to get a headache if I eat this um, broccoli. I'm like, okay, well, you're not eating this broccoli because I don't want you to have a terrible headache. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Just being respectful, I think, is very important across the board. Well, and that's the thing is like, I love that you brought that up because it's like, well, who are we actually respecting? Because if we're forcing our kids to eat something to make us feel like we provided for them and they're getting sick, it's an illusion that we're taking care of them, right? Exactly. And then we have to now unlearn these unhealthy or healthy eating habits that are affecting our body in different ways. You know what I mean? It's yeah. This, this human experience, Anna really depends. (laughs) (laughs) That's so real. It is such a tricky one. Being a human is there's a, this um, idea in Buddhism that I really I recently stumbled upon because I lost um, one of my like dear spiritual teachers of like seven years this year suddenly. And I, I felt like some of the grief, some of the deepest grief I've ever felt. And someone was telling me, they said, the human experience is so tricky and, and so full of suffering that we have it backwards. We should be mourning the birth of babies and we should be celebrating the death because they got through it. <laughs> OMG, literally was thinking about this. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> wow. Because it's, I mean, it's like, so true. Yeah, it is so true. I'm speechless because it's literally, if you think about it, you know, as humans, we just are fixated on all of the positivity around a human birth. But I am fixated on all the negativity around a human birth, all of the ways someone's going to break my child heart, like all the ways that he's going to learn about, you know, the unlearning that he needs to unlearn for the rest of his life. Like I'm not ready for that as a mom because I know how terrible it can be. But I also do realize that, you know, really the beauty in life is just very simple. I don't know. I'm now going to really nerd out and you're going to be like, can you I'm so into it. Don't ever stop. Keep it going. So have you watched the movie Soul on Disney Plus? Of course I have. I loved it. I mean, literally everyone needs to. That should be like, as soon as you pop out, watch this movie and then everyone should take an exam to like uphold these principles for the rest of their life. Because if you think about it, 
in that movie is exactly how we should be living our life. There's great beauty in just appreciating your breath, <laughs> looking at the leaves falling from the from the tree. And it's just like looking inward around the human experiences compared to all of these outward factors that are telling you that I provided broccoli for you, so you better be healthy. I've now given you the American dream, so you better figure it out. You know, it's just, it's isolating. And yeah. honestly, from the minute that we're born, we're just looking to be connected with somebody else that's also loving as much as we are in, inside of ourselves. You know what I mean? Oh, that's so true. And and I think that that's like the gift of grief is that it reminds us like of, of the moments of the day that are possible, you know? And it's it sucks because we often need to go like fall to our depths of despair mm-hmm. to be reminded that like it's okay and that – it is hard and that we will continue on hopefully. And I love the movie soul. And I love this idea that we have it backwards Mm -hmm. (laughs) because we totally do. (laughs) We totally do. And if you think about it, I mean, I mean, Anna, we all woke up, we woke up today, right? Thank God we have another day. And can you imagine if I woke up and the first thought that I had determined how my day was going to be like, you know what I mean? Like if I woke up and I was just like, going to have a a negative thought around today, I'm going to have a horrible day because I'm not going to get my ice cream. And the whole day is me. It's going to be a fiction movie of me not getting my ice cream. (laughs) Can you imagine if that was our reality? Oh my God. But if you think about it, it's like the reason we are so up, you know, afraid and we don't really know how to cope with grief is because it's uncomfortable. And if we think about it, you know, grief sucks. It really does. Any negative experience that you experience as a, as a human, there's nothing positive about it, but what you can make positive about it is what you're going to learn about it after it's over. So if you think about it, the most horrible thing can happen to me today. (laughs) And I'm laughing right now because, oh, good God, please don't let that happen. But if it does, you know, I think I'm okay because I know that I have, you know, the mental stability, um, you know, and also the love in myself to understand that this too shall pass, that if whatever happens yeah. today will end up passing. And what I learned today is what's going to help me really celebrate the next time that I have a joyous moment in my life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and I think, it's really tough, but to learn that lesson, a lot of times it takes us having to maybe not ha- not have had it all all the time. Like I think mm-hmm. privilege actually does a really big disservice to people mm-hmm. sometimes because you're so conditioned and used to being able to manipulate or navigate the world in the way that serves and supports you, that then when you're hit with a tough time, it's really hard. And I think that's why, you know, this idea of white fragility is so up for everyone is that like when the world is conditioned and created to see you as whole without having to struggle or try or or do anything differently, you become really comfortable and you and you can navigate the world, you know, relatively unscathed if you stay a certain path. I've seen it. I've seen people 
um, experience it. But there's, it's inevitable that that pain and grief and all of these things come up. And I think that's what's, and I'm giggling because that's what's happening in the world. Like this world, this America, this thing that we were like, oh, it's so great. Um, well, the white people were saying that probably um, <laughs> is now, you know, in complete chaos. It is, we're in this, you know, this is the year anniversary of the pandemic and sort of being housebound. Mm-hmm. And people are, are, are losing it. And I think it's the people who are losing it who are the ones that have always had everything. Yes. And, you know, I 100% agree with that. And also, you know, being the person that I am, you know, that little nerd with the Hello Kitty stationery, uh-huh. I also think about, you know, when people come from a place of privilege, um, I almost like they're just really not aware, just like they're on an autopilot in a different way that someone that's suffering is on autopilot. So when you're suffering, you're on autopilot, your whole life is determined around you're suffering, why that happened to you and how you can overcome it. When you're That's privileged, true. you're also on autopilot because believe it or not, everything's working well for you. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. your school, everything you've gone through, the privileges that you have, it's so on autopilot that you are not able to think for a critical moment and be aware mm. of your thoughts about your reality. And if you historically look at it, you know, I'm even going to say something you're going to be like, wow. But it's like, if you think about it, I kind of also given everything that's happened this past year and everything that's continuing happening now, especially, you know, the Asian American um, hate crimes that are on the rise, you know, if you think about it, you know, people that come from a place of privilege, especially, um, you know, white people, I think that a couple of things that when you come from a place of privilege and you're on, you're on autopilot. I also think that sometimes you're, you feel a lot more <laughs> and you're not able to really articulate and understand why someone is questioning your yeah. privileged status. So it's kind of like flipping the narrative in a different way where it's like, it's very obvious when you're coming from a place of suffering, like, Hey, 20 people just died <laughs> and you're not able to actually recognize why that's negative. It's just like, it talks about the morality of like a person that's in a place of privilege and not being able to understand how close that hits home when your, your mom isn't coming home today because their parents and their their network is also a place of privilege. So it really just depends. You know what I mean? It's like sitting the, these people down that are coming from a place of privilege and being like, hey, that's like Sally not coming home today. <laughs> you know? That's, so, that's such a – thank you for saying that because I think you're right. Like there is the – I think that there's not a, a development of empathy needed to understand. I think you're you're right. Like when someone is privileged and, you know, I'll put myself in that category because for a long time I was just like, you know, on autopilot, I will say that. And coming out of autopilot, like getting unplugged from the matrix is really, really painful and difficult because you not only realize that you were wrong, but you were like righteously wrong. Exactly. And I don't know if you watch a show called The Good Place. <laughs> I've seen some, but I, I have a lot of friends who love it. <laughs> so the analogy that I gave about coming from a place of privilege, like, you know, the white narrative right now and everyone else, like the other, is that it really, the white narrative is like, you've made it to heaven. You're already, literally your reality, everything is technically in society working to your advantage. 
the only place that it's not working to your advantage is if you think about it, if you're a white man, everything is working fine for you. If you're a white woman, <laughs> you know, we have some disadvantage, but it just, it really depends. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, you're already in heaven. Everyone else is in the other category is, you know, they're comparing it to the norm and you're like, I don't have that. I don't have this. And it's like their reality and their conditioning and their autopilot of suffering is very different than coming from a place where your autopilot of privilege is very different. So if you compare these two and, you know, I think sometimes it's so hard for someone that's in the other category to, you know, take a step back, realize that regardless of your autopilot of suffering that you're experiencing, that this autopilot of privilege that you're interacting with, no one's given them the time of day to tell them that you are on autopilot. Let's have mm-hmm. a conversation. <laughs> and it's going to be a difficult conversation because really the cards stacked against my um, my life and my are against my favor. So it's kind of like when you talk about an autopilot of suffering and you compare it to autopilot of privilege, it's like my autopilot of suffering is going to be really monumental. It's just like, I don't have people that are alive. I don't have the food. I don't have food in my stomach. I don't have a roof over my head. Like these are basic necessities that some people don't have because they're in the other category. And then you think about the privileged category, regardless of what's happening there. It's like, they might have those things. Like it is our job as humanity to have let them realize that your privilege is also causing your suffering <laughs> that mm. you're not able to understand the human experience that you're having because we should also collectively all of us should be mourning our our births because you know yeah. it really just depends on where you're stratified into society and your upbringing around that it it really factors your whole life and sometimes if you have an autopilot of privilege you can spend your whole life thinking everyone in the other category is just batshit crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. But really, it's because no one in your community, no one from the other category has had that conversation with you to help you realize that it's really not what you see on TV. It's really not what you read in the books. You know, I am Sabrit, and I'm having this conversation with you to tell you that getting educated across the board is hard. You know, like yeah. having parents that work blue-collar jobs and – their minimal wage is paying my tuition is hard. And maybe it's hard for you to realize that when you go to McDonald's and you order a double cheeseburger and you're like, can you make that quicker? You kind of remove yourself and you don't understand that that's someone's parent. That's someone, that's a human being. And what their experiences in America really do depend given um, how they were stratified as soon as they were born. Man, Sabri, you are blowing my mind. I, I, I have not, I mean, I've thought a lot about privilege, but this autopilot of suffering is so real. Telling you, because it's like, think about all the autopilot of suffering that you have, you know? I also read a lot of Buddhist books and, you know, I (laughs) I just, (laughs) we're, you know, we're the same right now. But if you think about it, I didn't even realize that my whole life, like, you know, I write about this in my book, my whole life, I was on autopilot trying to find a voice because the minute I was born, my voice was silenced because I was a girl, you know what I mean? And then I was like 20 some years old and I was like, oh my goodness, my whole life hasn't been around to this, what is happening? And then I was, obviously I figured out like what I can do with my autopilot of suffering, how I can cope with that and how I can help other people understand it. But it's like, you can legitimately spend hundred years of your life not knowing you're facing a human condition unless you educate your mind about it. You know what I mean? 
And the yeah. same goes for being a person of privilege. Like if I was born a white Caucasian woman that lived in Beverly Hills and, you know, was getting my nails done and I was in the nail salon and they were also Asian. And then I was trying to have a conversation about the Asian American hate crimes that are happening. Like, can you imagine that happened? And just thinking about that and saying it out loud to a person when I'm getting my nails done is just like doing a disservice because you don't understand what their reality is like. You know what I mean? So it's kind yeah. of like, you know, it just it just really depends. And that's why I'm such a nerd. I just like researching the hell out of these things because I feel like you can slice and dice the data in so many different ways. Oh my God, you are like, I could talk to you all day, I swear, because it's so interesting. Um, these like ways in which we think we're doing something, right? Like, so that, you know, say that was your experience and you're in the salon and you're like, oh, wow, I want them to know I'm really thinking about this. And they're there being like, I have to fucking work here. I am exactly. terrified. <laughs> I I don't want to be probably doing this. I want to take a mental health day because it's really scary. And now I have to talk to you with my nice voice of customer service and make you feel comfortable about whatever you're bringing up here because I want a fucking tip and I'm just doing my job. Literally preach. Exactly. It's just like, even in that pace of privilege, when they're trying to be empathetic and understand like, Hey, I'm sorry that your community is going through that. There's like 20 things happening there. You know, that individual does not have a voice to actually respond back the way that they would like to, because they're giving you a service. Number two, who knows if, you know, the people that, what people are we talking about? Number one, it's like there's so exactly, many exactly right. Yeah, so there's so many different people in the Asian American uh, community. Like, what people are you talking about? Number three, it's just like when you. This is the thing that I see that happens all the time, and I sometimes I actually feel really bad about this. It's like the when the person from privilege comes to a, a, a an, an event, and then the first thing they do is apologize. It's like the worst thing that can happen because it's like. They're like, who are you apologizing for? Why are you saying this to me? And furthermore, do you even know like what I have to go through? You open up a can of worms, you know what I mean? And it's just like sometimes even apologizing in advance about what a person might be going through does a disservice and silences their voice because they never spoke about how they felt in the first place. <laughs> and then it's all about your guilty feelings, right? And then also give me the Barbie pink because I have to go back into my car and go get Chipotle or something. So it's kind of like, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's just like, it's really interesting because it's like, even in social settings, the conversations that people of privilege would like to have with people that aren't in places of privilege really depend on that privilege status still. Wow. Oh my God. This is so true. My mind has exploded. (laughs) One, I think this is like, this is the, the exact double bind that our culture is in is like uh, people are who have privilege are saying fuck I have all this privilege what do I do how do I learn and I also don't have the resilience to cope with these feelings and I don't have the resilience to be in empathy so I'm in this weird sympathy place where I'm like apologizing And then I'm re-traumatizing the people that I'm trying to connect and understand and learn from. And then I'm sure after that I'm going to 
try to throw some money at you and that's gonna feel way worse (laughs) and it's like super isolating you know what i mean like i always think about this especially in social media oh my goodness and our media right now (laughs) is that it's very like um instant results base so it's like if something horrible is happening like whether it's a hate crime in asian americans or like um i don't know if you're aware of like the farmers protest is happening in india or all these other things that are happening across the world that are essentially long story short humanity is effed (laughs) you know if you think about that actual uh any type of event that's happening um what's happening right now is that people look towards people of uh, whether it's like uh, role models or people of like political power or public power to say certain things like what is your stance on this particular issue it is really driven right now people really look for other people to have a stance on an issue and i would actually like to pause on that you know, when someone doesn't speak out about an issue or if someone is speaking out about it too soon, I think we do a great disservice because we don't give everyone the opportunity to understand what just happened, be mindful about it, see how your body is reacting to that, what are your thoughts around it, educate your mind around mm-hmm. it, and then come with an educated like an educated opinion about your stance instead of I do or I don't support that. Like Because when we are so driven to say I do or don't support that, since there's no factual understanding of what is happening there, that that support is also false. You know what I mean? Wow. Yeah. It reminds me, there's this, uh, I love um, comedians and comedy. I think they're great, but, <coughs> oh, excuse me. There's a Dave Chappelle. I don't know if it's a skit or it's part of it, one of his comedy routines, but he talks about how people are like, give, people in um in like celebrity positions a lot of power and so he has this joke where he'd be like what does Ja Rule think about this and like (laughs) it comes back to that a lot and and it's like yeah we I even find myself looking to my partner sometimes for like okay how do we feel about this and it's like no 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 how do you feel and how do I feel and like, maybe I feel a different way. Tell me about how you feel because I want to understand, but I don't need to just ditch my experience because it might actually have a lot of great information where I'm not able to tap into empathy or I'm not actually like understanding this on a level that I can, that can sort of penetrate my privilege or, or whatever it is that I is the blocker for me to understand and I think it's like a a little bit of that, like we have been indoctrinated to be told what to do and how to think and what's cool and what's not. And it's that's like part of that unlearning process is like, okay, I see these two options. Now let me do some research inside of my body and see like what feels right and why do I think that? And then maybe I'm like, I'm not actually equipped to make this judgment. So let me read a few articles or or speak or have a conversation with someone who has more of lived experience that is close to me that can help me understand and then I can make that thoughtful decision of how I feel about it versus just like the propaganda of like majority people feel this way I'm doing it and you know what the biggest thing behind what you just said is that people honestly are just lazy to do their homework like they (laughs) won't do it and they're I just was like gonna say lazy, but I was like, is that should I nah, not? But it's it is, literally I think true. I have a lazy brain. 
no, 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 I'm not saying no, 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 no. What I'm saying is just like when people are just like, what does Ja Rule think? And if Ja Rule thinks this way, I'm going to think this way. That's being lazy around the issue. Like you're not educating yeah. your mind around the true issue of what's happening when you just think that that one individual, like I'll give you a great example. I'm pretty sure you know about Priyanka Chopra Jonas, right? The South mm-hmm. Asian woman that's really, really big right now. But what you don't know is that she comes from an extremely big place of privilege. She's a Hindu. She, you know, comes from a family that is of educated elites. She also has a background of coming from money. So it's like when she talks about an issue, that issue is coming from a privileged place of the South Asian community. And her silence, when she doesn't talk about other things, such as the farmers' protests and other things, she actually is further showing the world that she is coming from a, a dominant narrative and the subordinate narrative around a lot of the experiences that other people might be having, having she can't resonate with and she doesn't she doesn't know how to provide that uh, insight because she hasn't lived those experiences. So it's like she actually falls wow. into the crazy rich Asian stereotype and everyone else that's like, hey, Priyanka, aren't you going to talk about something other than uh, an Indian wedding and tell like America what it means to be a South Asian woman? She'll talk about the positivity around the South Asian community, but she will not talk about the negativity. She won't talk about what it means to be a girl. She won't talk about how men are favored more than women. She won't talk about, you know, what happens. Like, I really want to know, I haven't read her memoir yet, but I really want to know, does she talk about what her mom went through after her dad died? Because usually in South Asian communities, when a woman's husband dies, (laughs) she is all of a sudden like out in the open without protection, like, family comes from everywhere trying to make her understand like hey you're all alone your family needs to protect you because you don't have a man a man looking after you anymore does she actually talk about those issues because if she did then she's coming from a place where she's able to empathize and understand the main narrative that is actually so like you know in the south asian culture but since she doesn't talk about those things it further perpetuates that she comes from a place of privilege because her mother is also highly educated, comes from a higher social class and has the economic resources to make all of the cultural implications be silenced. You see what I'm saying? So it's like, if Priyanka Chopra is not going to talk about something, that doesn't mean that, you know, I should or should not talk about that. What I should be doing is educating my thought processes and understanding what does Priyanka Chopra actually represent and what are all of the positive and negatives associated with her and how much of her positivity is associated with my lived experiences and as an individual of a South Asian um, diaspora. You see what I'm saying? But it's like you really have to slice it so much to even be like, hey, Ja Rule, do you support this or not? (laughs) Well, and then you have to be like, okay, is Ja Ja the one who can – help me understand this or is that just someone that I like their music is not actually doesn't have the experience to be able to give me thoughtful insight exactly yeah and it's honestly it is really emotionally mentally cumbersome to learn about any one issue and to analyze your body to this extent that we just have in this conversation. Holy crap. I probably need like two weeks detox to understand (laughs) all of the ways that our human conditioning is working against us or for us. So it's like any one particular issue, whether it is around the Asian American hate crimes that are happening or around, you know, Black Lives Matter or any kind of issue that's happened in the past one year of quarantining, like we need to understand that 
Picking just one issue and understanding it to the nth degree is actually a great service, but trying to understand all issues at the same time is also a great disservice to your mental health. Just pick a few issues that you're really passionate around. And that doesn't mean that because you come from a place of privilege, you are just automatically disservicing everything and you're like, I don't care about these issues. You're actually a better ally in this way because you're making educated, informed decisions around your support instead of just supporting something because everyone else is supporting it. You know what I mean? Totally. That makes so much sense. And I think that's actually really helpful for people, you know, depending if you're coming from a place of um, those two places that we were talking where it's like the autopilot of, you know, life is really hard and the sort of othered category and then the autopilot of privilege and how both can take that, that tool and come with some like real brain power behind it and some real like feeling power. I think it's both. It's like, My logical brain can help me identify what's going on, but like it's really about the embodiment of how we move through our life. And so it's it's also a practice of like, what do I think? Does it if I'm hearing this, is there anxiety in my body? Is it am I am I numb to it? Am I, you know, like there's so many different experiences we can have that are giving us the information of how we're receiving or not receiving that and and it does take a lot and i think that's that's a situation we're in is like it does take a lot of thought and a lot of care and a lot of consideration and if we're really showing up fully we're showing up with that care and that thought and it's easier not to do that and so if you've been in an experience where you can you could just kind of glide through why would you practice the hard thing <laughs> Exactly. And if you think about the autopilot of suffering, I think this is just my experience. Please feel free to disagree. Okay. In the autopilot of suffering, there are probably one or two extremely big sufferings that are dictating your whole life. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And I think so. Think about the autopilot of privilege. There's probably one or two that are really determining your privilege. So for you to understand your privilege and to dismantle just understanding that you're a white woman and you have been privileged because of these 10 factors, you're already doing a lot. You're already helping your other categories. You know what I mean? Yeah. if you are saying like, you know, I support Black Lives Matter, but then behind the closed door, be like, I actually don't support it. <laughs> you need to actually understand why you yeah. don't support it and what around what are the trade-offs that you're making in your own understanding of why you think that, you know, Black lives actually don't matter and what that means for you as an individual before you actually support things because for the sake of supporting it. If you can actually be authentic in your support, regardless of you know, where you land on things, I think we our humanity would be better because at least we have people that are ridiculous regardless, that people that are so backwards that yeah. <laughs> no matter what you say to them, they think that people from a certain kind of uh, culture or race should be treated this way. We understand, but that is not the main uh, narrative that is dictating our society. I think that regardless of a place, if you come from a place of privilege, that you know, humanity is kind of great if they're able to fully analyze, understand their privilege and understand where they're coming from, that they will, there will be an aha moment where they actually are capable of changing and helping their other allies that don't have those privileges that were given to them at birth. But that involves 
a lot of soul searching, a lot of understanding, and just mm-hmm. honestly, just doing your homework and pulling out your Hello Kitty and saying, hey, <laughs> these are my 10 categories of privileges. And these are, my, I think, the 10 categories of, um, you know, suffering that people from this diaspora might be feeling. What categories do I care about? And how can I help them understand that I am their ally? Just pick one or two. And I think if we did that collectively, every single person that did that collectively, I think we would be moving towards a more fair society. Oh my gosh, I love this. Okay, so I always ask this question and it's like, what are three things that you feel are necessary and important to make your community feel like they belong? But I think I want to change it because you've already started saying like, what are three things collectively as a society we can individually practice to make everyone feel like they belong? Oh, I'm so ready for this one. You ready okay. for this? I'm okay. ready. Okay, no, hit me. Hit this us. Is like, this is like the jeopardy right now. Okay, number one. I think regardless of if you're coming from a place of privilege or a place of disservice, ask yourself one question. How aware are you about your own human conditioning? Being aware about your human conditioning, being aware about what how your life has been can actually give you great insight on how to become an ally. First, be aware. Okay. And of your own human conditioning, which I think is like, everyone says be aware, but I don't think we all are taught to be like, be aware of how you specifically walk through the world, the the labels you have and the things that you've gotten or not gotten. And like, know that, know yourself. Okay. Love exactly. It. Just like know yourself, be aware of who Anna is, just know yourself. Number two. Anything that's um, considered the dominant narrative in society, I encourage people to go look at the subordinate narrative, whether if it's like everyone in America is happy. What about all the people that are sad? Everyone in every South Asian is coming over here because they're doctors, lawyers and uh, engineers. Flip it. What about all those other people that probably aren't doctors, lawyers, and engineers? What are they doing? And then ask yourself the question, when there is a dominant narrative in any... um, whether it's any uh, uh, culture or any society, there is a subordinate narrative that no one is aware of. Go, go find out what it is. Whether if it's like thinking about the dominant narrative, everyone has internet. (laughs) The subordinate is- What do the people do who don't have internet? How do they get their information? And how have the people that don't have internet, how have they been quarantining and how have they been going to school? You know what I mean? Like go find it and just look up some articles around that. Just asking that question, I'm like, dang- that's what I'm saying. So it's just Dang, like, yeah. To it's like the yin and yang of society. To every yin, there's a yang. Every positive, there's a negative. Go find it. And I think if you educated your mind on every negative that goes with every positive, you would actually learn a lot about any kind of uh, society and the main narrative that they're actually spinning out to the world. Wow. Okay. Mind blown. Okay, we got two. And then okay. The third one, this one is probably going to be cliche, but you know, I did mention soul. So here we go. Ending on a Disney plus move, but (laughs) (laughs) honestly, be authentic to yourself. This kind of ties into number one and number two, but like understanding yourself, being truly authentic to your suffering, to your privileges, you know, if you're eating broccoli, if you're eating a double cheeseburger and thinking about your inner voice, like you have that inner voice, it's that voice that doesn't shut up. It's always on 24 seven. Go, go have a date with that voice. Go understand yourself and understand that 
to honestly, authentically be yourself is to understand your voice to the nth degree and be comfortable with that and also be uncomfortable with it. If there's parts of your voice that are kind of batshit crazy, have a conversation with yourself and understand that if you don't give yourself a date to understand yourself, no one else will. If you don't give yourself the ability to authentically be yourself, no one else will. But more importantly, understand that if you don't have a relationship with yourself, you're doing a great disservice to have a relationship with everyone else around you. That is so, that's the best advice. Thank you so much. Um, I think that's so real. It's like knowing yourself, knowing, knowing what you have going for you, knowing what the things that you don't have going for you, knowing where some of the things that you like see others have that you don't have, like really understanding that. And then going into that and like questioning everything I think that's so interesting because even if like I realized that I wasn't even questioning some of the hateful thoughts I had or, and then it's like, well, if you have that just running rampant inside, it's just going to kind of expel itself, live a life of its own. But I could be like, okay, why do I have that? Where did that come from? And like, you can kind of excavate it and figure it out. And honestly, I know you asked for three questions since this is Jeopardy. We're going to do a bonus question. It's like kind of ties to everything else. It's like the biggest thing that you can do to understand number one, number two, number three is what you just said. Ask yourself why. Any question, any response in life, be the South Asian woman that people are saying that is disrespectful because she's asking why. (laughs) Yeah. Ask yourself why. Why do I like a hamburger? Because I like the way it makes me feel or I actually like the way it, you know, hits me in my stomach or whatever it is. Ask why. Ask yourself why you actually choose to eat that broccoli. Ask yourself why you choose to, you know, listen to Jaw Rule over listening to, you know, anybody else. Like, you know, yeah. when you ask yourself why, you're going to find the answer to why that why might matter or why it doesn't matter anymore. You know what I mean? Yes. Oh my God. This is so great. This is so helpful, I think, for people to figure out how do they unpack some of these uncomfortable things that they have going or or when they see something on the news that they're like, I don't understand it. Because I think I started doing that, you know, last year really deeply. Like I thought I had a handle on um, my kind of understanding myself, but I realized I was just like the tip of the iceberg, right? There's all this happening beneath. And I think the thing I've come to is like, we are in a constant state of curiosity and flux with ourselves. And so it's like, you can keep asking why when you get an answer and then it the question comes again, it's like, oh, it's changing. That's why my perception, my ideology, my values even are starting to shift because I'm really questioning everything and knowing that like I am this teeny tiny speck in this universe of like life and (laughs) everything is so great. Like we don't know it all. (laughs) Exactly. And we're not supposed to know it all, but if you ask ourselves why, you'll notice that the whys are always changing. And even sometimes the decisions we make and the things that we support is are always changing, but that's part of being human is changing into becoming more of ourselves. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh my gosh. This has been such a great conversation. I have one, one last question before um, we depart. And I honestly could probably talk to you for four hours about this. This has been so lovely. Um, 
But this is my moneymaker question. This is the question I ask um, every guest who comes on the show. And that is, you know, with everything you've said and, and all the work that you do, if you had a, like a magical wand or dust or you can pick your apparatus by which your magic is administered but if you could pick one thing to change about the world tomorrow what would it be to make it feel like this is a place where you and your community are supported and held oh okay this is i just got superpowers so i kind of have to think about what i want to say because this is like this is awesome. I feel like I just became Superman. And the one thing that I probably will like to change and, you know, really thinking about this and thinking about my book and everything that I stand for, I think the one thing I would like to change and really like with my swiftable wand, make sure that, you know, immigrants, you know, parents that come over here, children of immigrants, that the one thing that I would like to say is that I see your suffering. Like, I just want to wand it and being like, I understand your mental health. I understand your lack of mental health. I see your suffering. I see how much you've been working as a hidden hero. Um, and I see you because if mm-hmm. when someone says they see you, that is life changing. When someone tells you that they see your suffering, that they see why, you know, anything is happening in your reality, the way that it is happening, it actually helps change the way that you understand yourself. So it's like with my magic wand, it's just like poof one time in everyone's single brain, I will be like, Hey, Everything that's happening to you, even if you're not talking about it, I see you and it's okay. And I've actually been there too. (laughs) Also like some validation and understanding. Yeah. And knowing that they aren't alone. Not alone. Literally happening to everybody. And because Anna just made me a super or a superman, so or a superwoman, whatever. It's like super person. I'm I'm a super person. I see you, I feel you, and it's literally okay. Oh my gosh, I love that. I think if we could all have something that could just... And I love that especially for the experience that you've experienced, like really giving people a gift to be like, you are not alone, I see you. I think that is a beautiful um, intention and I love love that answer. And that's my favorite question to ask because um, everyone has their own version but they're all for the greater good and so I think that's amazing I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation I think that um, the universe kept pushing our uh, recording time back and back but I think it landed right on the perfect time today so I just want to say thank you so much for being here and for sharing your experience and about your book and, and really just sharing your insight and wisdom that I feel like we can all take a little bit of and really ask ourselves, why do we do what we do and why do we think the way we think? And some of it will be awesome and we'll be super excited and some of it we'll get to like play with and explore. And I think you gave us all that gift today. So I want to say thank you and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me here and talking to me. And I'm happy that the universe pushed us off to have this conversation right now because I literally had so much fun. But more importantly, I feel like if we had more people like you in the world, you know, true allies trying to understand what is happening and have these conversations, I think the world would be a better place. So I really do appreciate the work that you do. And I really hope that, you know, you continue to do what really drives you. 
Thank you so much, Sabrit. That means so much to me. And I am so happy, everyone. I hope you enjoy this episode and I will see you later. Hope you have a great day. Bye.